I'm Jamie Floyd, host of All Things Considered at WNYC. You're listening to Politics Brief, a collection of our very best coverage of the 2018 midterm elections. We'll share the sharpest and most timely talk, analysis, and original reporting from shows like The Takeaway, The Brian Lehrer Show, On the Media, and Radio Lab Presents More Perfect. And from the WNYC Newsroom, which is watching key races in New York and New Jersey. Enjoy. Okay, ladies, spread out rather than be in a circle. Just kind of creatively space yourself and face this direction. Recently, in a side room of a theater in Oklahoma City, Rena Cook held a workshop for eight women running for office. What I want to start us with is feeling grounded and centered. We know that before we face a crowd or face the press, we want to be in our most grounded and authentic place. Cook is the voice coach for Sally's List. It's a nonprofit that supports progressive female candidates in Oklahoma. And her job is to help women up their public speaking game. And soften your knees. Bring your base in just a skosh. Yeah, that's it. And think long back of neck, soft front of neck. Your chin is parallel. When we lift our chin, it makes our voice strident. And we don't want to get that adjective, strident, bossy, aggressive, all of those. Those adjectives. They are probably familiar to any woman who has stepped into a leadership role. And to be clear, they're just sexist slurs meant to undermine a woman's authority. But for Rena Cook, that's beside the point. Because these prejudices are getting in the way of political power. So she is trying to help women subvert them. Good. Now we're going to add one more thing. I'm Kai Wright. This is the United States of Anxiety, Gender, Power, and the Midterm Elections. And in this episode, reporter Jim O'Grady listens to our voices. And he meets some women who are trying to break through our prejudice about how power should sound. Here's the problem. When a man speaks loudly and emphatically, he's a take-charge guy. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. But when a woman does the same... I believe our economy isn't working the way it should because our democracy isn't working the way it should. Out come the pundits. She tends to assume a kind of kindergarten teacher type hectoring tone, which is not appealing even to some Democrats. That's cable TV host Tucker Carlson hectoring Hillary Clinton. This is the double standard that outspoken women have faced forever. What's new is the tactic that female candidates are increasingly using to address it. They're turning to experts like Rena Cook. How you doing? Good. I called Cook a few months ago. I heard about her through the president of the Voice and Speech Trainers Association. That's an international group she belongs to. And the first thing Cook says to me is, yeah, of course, the double standard still handicaps outspoken women. But here's the bottom line. We can't control that. As women, we can't control the implicit bias of other people. What a woman can control is the sound and substance of her voice. We can manage where our power comes from. We can manage how much stress 
or absence of stress is in, you know, the mouth and the throat, the vocal tract. I went to Oklahoma City to watch Cook in action at a gathering of women running for office around the state, all of them Democrats. She tells me that two years ago, there were 12 female candidates for the group to endorse. This year, it's 45. Are you proud? Oh my gosh, busting my buttons, I'm so proud. She takes me around the Will Rogers Theater making introductions. This is Karen Gaddis. She is currently running for re-election. Karen Gaddis is a Democrat and retired school teacher. In 2016, she ran for a seat in the Oklahoma House of Representatives. She got out there, worked hard, knocked on doors, but got thumped by a well-funded Republican. She admits that campaigning was tough at first, especially public speaking. Large group settings, I was a little bit taken aback. Why? Just unsure of myself. And so how did you deal with that? Well, I've learned to get better. I think about that when I get up in front of a group, that I deserve to be here, that I have good ideas, I want to present myself well. I think if you can be a good speaker, a passionate speaker, you can beat money. After the election, women on the Republican representative staff accused him of sexual harassment, and he resigned. Gaddis then won the seat in a special election, but her difficulties were not over. Speaking on the floor to a group full of predominantly men can be very intimidating. I have been called sweetheart. Tell that story. Where are you? What are you doing? And who says that to you? I'm arguing with one of the majority leaders, and uh, he got pretty disgusted with me. And under his breath, he said something about, that's enough, sweetheart, or something like that. And I was so taken aback, I, I should have said something right then, right there, about I demand that he apologize. It's not anything he would have dared say to a man. It's just ridiculous that this is like what she has to do. She's an elected official and she's got to deal with this kind of thing. It's true. And of course, as you know this guy, this is nothing new. Um, although we have an example from recent history of a very famous politician who faced exactly this dismissiveness. And she got around it in part by very consciously cultivating gravitas in her speaking voice. So that sounds interesting. So who is this mastermind, this, this female politician who rose through the ranks changing her voice? Kai, it's a very famous story. They made a movie about it. It's called The Iron Lady. Oh, Margaret Thatcher. That's right. I didn't think you were going to know it. It's Meryl, a great movie. It is. Meryl Streep won an Oscar for it in 2012. Um, and to, if you want to hear the before and after of Thatcher's voice, you can go to YouTube and you can find that. But we're going to use a couple of scenes from the movie because they are historically accurate and they very clearly make this point. Right. So the first one is Streep playing early Thatcher debating in Parliament. Honourable lady doth screech too much. If the right honourable gentleman could perhaps attend more closely to what I am saying, rather than how I am saying it, he may receive a valuable education in spite of himself. Did you catch that? The man who's mocking her specifically uses the word screeching. So why is that significant? Well, Mary Beard is a classics professor and a scholar, and in her new book, Women in Power, 
She says this is a very pointed tactic that goes back to ancient times when a woman would speak up in public Mm -hmm. and then a man would just leap to his feet and compare her voice to the high-pitched sounds of animals. And what he's doing there is he's saying a woman who speaks up at all is unnatural. She's against nature. And you hear in that clip there, Thatcher is pleading, forget the sound and focus on my words. But the men in the room are like, as they've been since ancient times, why? You're screeching. But so how does Thatcher then get around that? How does she go from that moment to who she becomes? It happens like this. It's 1979, and she's the leader of the Conservative Party in Parliament. But her political strategist, a guy named Gordon Reese, he knows that she has a problem with public speaking. She's the daughter of a shopkeeper, but she keeps trying to put on this posh accent that's just not working. So what she needs to do, he realizes, is find this like natural steel that's already in her. It needs to get into her voice. So he goes to the Royal National Theater and he arranges for her to work with a voice coach. And do what? What do they do with the voice coach? He lowers her pitch and he slows her down. And here's a great example of this. Streep is playing late Thatcher after she's been drilled for years in these vocal techniques. She's prime minister now and she's telling parliament why she's taking England to war over the Falklands. We responded as we have responded in times past with unity, strength and courage. Sure in the knowledge that though much is sacrificed, in the end, right will prevail over wrong. More forceful, more direct. And the important thing is Thatcher is using a different voice, but not a false voice. It's still intrinsically hers. And as Meryl Streep told Terry Gross on Fresh Air, that's the crucial difference. Voice lessons really just bring out a voice that you already possess. Streep says she studied Thatcher's voice as if it was music. Because every voice, every voice really, is produced in our bodies like a complex piece of music. So break that down for us. How does the body make a voice, regardless of your gender, whether you're male or female? How does this work? It begins with the breath. Every word we say starts as a breath in the lungs that's pushed up by the belly through the bronchial tubes until it reaches the larynx. The breath moves through the larynx then and out across the vocal folds. And this is the first big turning point where men's voices and women's voices, they start to diverge. Mm. Okay, so how so? Well, first, picture the breath hitting the vocal folds and making them move hundreds of times a second. I asked university professor and speech pathologist Celia Stewart to describe this. The vocal folds start vibrating like this. Dr. Stewart says male hormones in puberty enlarge the larynx and push it out from the throat, and that creates the Adam's apple. And this larger larynx comes with a slower, thicker set of vocal folds. The male voice tends to be a lower fundamental frequency, which means the vocal folds vibrate slower, so it's a lower pitch. And the female voice, the vocal folds vibrate at about twice the speed of the male voice. That's why overall, women have a higher pitch than men. And Kai, I can show this to you with a couple of rubber bands. This is the male rubber band. Describe what it looks like. All right, so that one's thick. That's a big, thick rubber band, like the kind you'd get around your, like, fruit. Exactly. Okay, so these are the male vocal folds. So when 
the breath passes across them. This is the pitch. Uh-huh. Okay. Got it. And now here are the female vocal folds and describe this rubber One band. Of those little thin green ones, you know, like. It's much thinner. It's much thinner. It's yeah. And it produces this pitch. Right. You hear the difference? Uh huh. It's higher, right? Right. Female, male. Right. That's Got it. how it works. Okay, so that's pitch. Yeah. But you said there's more to it than that. There is. Uh, the second change that happens when we speak is the breath passing through the resonators. Okay, so what do they do? The resonators are spaces in the throat and in the head, the oral cavity, the nasal cavity, sinus passages, and they fill out the tone and the quality of our voices. Men have larger resonators, so they're more like a baritone sax. While women are more soprano sax. Resonance is a wonderful thing, and what resonance actually means is that some parts of the sound wave are made louder, and some parts are made quieter. So you can have resonance that makes your voice sound round and full, or you can have resonance that makes your voice sound shrill. So we're talking about, like, good resonance creates this pleasing balance. Yes, yes. Men get even more resonance because their vocal structures send most of their sound waves back toward their chest. Women, on the other hand, their vocal structures send most of their breath up toward the head, and that gives them this brighter, crisper tone. Inherently, of course, men's voices aren't any better than women's voices, but culturally... Most people like that deeper resonance, the bass sound. It's a, it's a pleasant sound. It's wonderful to listen to. And so oftentimes, I think because of that, and also because maybe males are more dominant in society in many ways, they've taken on a characteristics of, of being more in charge and having more authority. And so women will copy that. If I'm meeting a friend, I might go, it's me. But if I'm lecturing in class, I use this voice down here that is a much lower pitch voice. And we, we do that. This is, it's a type of code switching that we do all of the time. We really do. I do it myself. And it's been pointed out to me on Twitter that I get really, really high when I'm not being serious and really, really low when I'm being very serious. So, but what does this mean for women running for office in 2018? Well, Dr. Stewart recommends they practice mastering their public voice, even under pressure. Actually, especially under pressure. When you are a politician and you are speaking in highly emotionally laden situations and you want to come across as being reasonable, one of the ways to do that is to keep the voice more smooth and resonant. It's the difference between projecting your voice and shouting where you tighten up. Stewart told me she wishes she could have whispered in Hillary Clinton's ear and just talked to her about adjusting her pitch subtly and even toning down the occasional tension in her voice. And that's not to say that much of the harsh reaction to Clinton's voice was fair. It wasn't fair. It's only to make the obvious point that, as Rena Cook says to her candidates, politics is theater. Now let's really make big mouth. Yawn. Oh, make a sound. Oh, stretch with your arms like I'm doing. Oh. Relaxation happens when you stretch and sigh out loud. So when you're backstage waiting to go on, give yourself a little moment to stretch and sigh. It's about presentation 
and persuasion. Loud and proud, soft knees, deep breath, big mouth, go. A.J. Pittman, state representative-elect, House District 99. And as Pittman can now tell you, it's also about winning. The more you do it, the more natural it comes. I've done it. I've had a session with Miss Rena. I look crazy doing her exercises. She had me stick fingers in my mouth. And when someone saw me doing it behind stage, my team was like, who taught her this? Is she okay? But once I went on... And I was speaking very clearly, and my nerves were very calm. They realized it was a method to the madness. Yeah, madness. It's, of course, ridiculous that a woman running for office has to go to these lengths to be taken seriously. We've conflated power and masculinity to such a degree that we literally struggle to hear women speak. Rena Cook and her students in Oklahoma are doing whatever they can to be heard in spite of that reality. But listening to their story, I can't help but ask, how is this still necessary? How can the biology of vocal folds matter to who we elect in 2018? Up next, a veteran reporter remembers the heady days of the 1977 National Women's Conference. And she wonders aloud, what went wrong? You're listening to the Politics Brief Podcast. We'll be back after a quick break. We're getting ready for Election Day. And as the campaign draws to a close, we got this essay from cultural critic Karen Michelle. She looks back on 50 years of feminism, gender, and power in America. And she begins with the pop music that still rings in her ears. Much of my life is defined by its soundtrack. That's a major way that I track time, history, culture. And now, if I could sing, I would. Loudly. Everywhere. Songs of the past. Wailing. You don't own me. I'll cry if I want to. And girls just want to have fun. On our terms. But we're in a time that seems a forever time, when our say is no say at all, and when it's still considered enough of an anomaly for a woman to run for president or any elective office other than school board that their gender is mentioned before their policies. There are historical blips, just blips, easily abandoned. Me too and Victoria Woodhull's 1872 run for president among them. Hit delete. That circle the folkies sang about? Broken. When I was in my teens... A teacher suggested I read Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique. It wasn't long after February 1963 when the book was published. Betty Friedan said that women, housewives and mothers, were basically miserable. It was, she said, the problem that has no name. There are real values in motherhood. It's not just a mystique. But there came to be in the 1950s this kind of doctrine that tried to make 
housewife, mother of full-time lifelong occupation. And words like career women became dirty words. The book and for Dan made no sense to me. I grew up in rented apartments in Los Angeles. I had no concept of what a suburb was, and my mother was no dutiful housewife. But for many women, it was revolutionary. When my old friend Carol Durfner read it, she knew the feminine mystique was about her. I was so bored. I was so bored being a housewife. And I liked being a housewife. I'm very domestic. I like taking care of people. I like taking care of homes. I like cooking. I liked all of that kind of stuff. It was not enough. It just was not enough. Carol's a bit older than I am. We'd been friends long ago in Alaska, where she lived in a fine condo, and I in a log cabin without running water and electricity. My husband and I had tried, you know, marriage therapy, but marriage was ending. But you had worked prior to being married, right? Yes, I had worked prior to being married, but when I married him, he didn't want me to work anymore. Carol wound up getting divorced, launched a career as an arts administrator, and joined the National Organization for Women. In 1977, she went off to Houston to the National Women's Conference. And the voice that I remember so much was Barbara Jordan, Congresswoman Barbara Jordan from Texas. And she was the keynote speaker. And what she talked about was how we are all different, but we are all the same. Human rights apply equally to Soviet dissidents, Chilean peasants, and American women. Implicit in being free to be you and me, implicit in that, is the recognition of the diverse opinion represented here. We must not impose on others what we would not have imposed on ourselves. We are wasting valuable time. Now please, take your chairs. But of course the delegates did feel imposed upon. Anti-abortionists, lesbians, older women, and many women of color felt marginalized, unheard. Especially for them, the problem that has no name wasn't their biggest problem. Racism and classism were. They were often the women who cleaned the homes of those unhappy suburban housewives. Or like my mother, a woman who fled the Holocaust, waited on them. She sold those ladies' lovely lingerie that she couldn't afford to own. Many women felt that Ferdinand's message and second-wave feminism spoke to people of leisure, who had the time to meet and protest, who had inheritances or spouses of means to support them, lived in houses with substantial front lawns, not rented apartments they were worried about losing. Perhaps not surprisingly, advertisers figured out that those newly awakened women were a market their message wanted to take over and to twist, to monetize. You've come a long way, baby, to get where you've got 
Introducing new Virginia Slims. Those mad men found a way to kill us off faster when Virginia Slims came out with the first cigarette aimed at women. It was considered a plus. We'd come so far we could have our own carcinogen and call ourselves baby. Now, in a slim bit of fairness, on TV, Mary Tyler Moore and Candace Bergen as Murphy Brown, a mighty gender-neutral name, showed that women could be bosses, single mothers, and smart. Not that it's all bleak, exactly. I stand before you to proclaim tonight, America is the land where dreams can come true for all. Geraldine Ferraro did run for vice president, but she didn't make it. Few women landed in office or at the head of a major or even not-so-big-deal company, much less achieve anything like economic equality. And then there was Hillary Rodham Clinton's run for president. I asked my friend Carol, after all, she was there, part of the movement, and benefited from it. Had it actually moved much at all? She says, yes. What happened after the day that the man who I will not name was inaugurated as 45th president of the United States? The Women's March all over the world. And I'm like, oh my God, it's worked. It's worked. All this work that we have put in, this, this is what this is about. These women were so offended, so offended by this breach that had been made in the progressive march for women's equality, that they had to just come out of their houses, come out of their doors, congregate in the middle of streets, and just start screaming to the heavens, no more, no, no, no. But yelling no doesn't necessarily morph into motion. Maybe those ads infantilizing women totally worked, reinforcing the patriarchy. Or perhaps that lack of unity Barbara Jordan talked about was the problem. Maybe it's that most women had plenty of other things to do, like work, rather than to get out there and protest. Or maybe it was the outright backlash against feminism, Phyllis Schlafly, the campaign to defeat the Equal Rights Amendment, and the introduction of a new phrase in our political vocabulary, family values. Perhaps we will not go back to the old family ways, but I think we can and should preserve family values. Values of faith, honesty, responsibility, tolerance, kindness, and love. It could be that a big part of the problem, the tension, is language. Maybe we don't need waves of feminism, but something that is part of rather than apart from. I wonder what would happen if the word feminism was nuked, its baggage defanged. All feminism means is equality, and that remains a scary notion, a dirty word. So if we changed the language, if we marveled and worked and did the now seemingly impossible and assumed that the possible, that women aren't defined by gender but accomplishment, is inevitable. Starting now. We need to stop screaming and start laughing, to feel joy, 
We don't have time to complain. We don't have time. That was Karen Michelle. Look out for her podcast, Venus Over 50, coming up in 2019. And as we finish this episode, Election Day is right around the corner. Dozens of states have already started voting, actually. And in the next episode, we'll try to make sense of the results. But first, let's all focus on the immediate task. If you haven't already, go vote. United States of Anxiety is a production of WNYC Studios in the newsroom of WNYC. This episode was reported by Jim O'Grady and Karen Michelle. It was edited by Christopher Wirth, Kari Pitkin, and Karen Froman, who is also our executive producer. Casey Means is our technical director. Our theme music was written by Hannes Brown and performed by the Outer Borough Brass Band. Allison Light is our intern. Michelle Harris has been our fact checker throughout this season. Andy Lancet is our archivist, and thanks to the Pacific Archives for the tape from the women's meeting. Our team also includes Christopher Johnson, Jessica Miller, Melinda Siri Wardana, Courtney Stein, and Vera Lynn Williams. Jim Schachter is vice president of news for WNYC, and I am Kai Ray. Thanks for listening. The United States of Anxiety is supported in part by the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. Additional support for WNYC's election coverage is provided by Emerson Collective, the New York Community Trust, and New York Public Radio trustee, Dr. Mary White. Thanks for listening to Politics Brief. If you want more, go to wnyc.org slash election.